0: Few innovations have led to our existence and affluence like the development of agriculture. Roughly 12,000 years ago, we started planting simple founder crops like barley, peas, and lentils. Then in the next phase, 2,000 years later, we started domesticating animals and improving our cultivation methods. Phase after phase brought improvements and playbooks to the point where humanity's populations exploded, giving the rise of other innovations since we no longer needed to hunt and gather. Then, all the way to modern times, we now have agribusinesses that have Fitbits for cows and seeds that have driven the world's poverty level down, something our ancestral agronomists likely couldn't have imagined. The point is, technology and teams of innovators pushed agriculture forward. We'd be nowhere without asking why, managing the chaos that comes with innovation, and ultimately pushing humanity forward in one innovative direction. In a business, you don't have millennia to grow and evolve. Instead, you need to harness innovation, you need to use playbooks, and ultimately you need to cultivate people to push your evolution forward for growth. I can't think of a better person who embodies growing an organization quickly than HubSpot's VP of Growth, Kieran Flanagan. He started as a sole digital hunter-gatherer before growing the A-team, what HubSpot calls their acquisition team, to over 60 of the most effective, highest leverage marketers in the industry. We'll be walking through the tools and methods that have made Kieran and HubSpot successful to ensure your own growth brings a bountiful harvest. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we showcase the people in the trenches actually doing the work. On today's episode, Kieran Flanagan, VP of Marketing at HubSpot, dishes it out on growth. He discusses the evolution of growth at HubSpot and in most companies, prioritizing and positioning over-investing in a few growth bets, playbooks and planning, and finally learning from mistakes. That product growth team, how do they function from a prioritization perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have
1: a great story in this, actually, because there's a great way to frame our evolution of growth. So I call it the, the three stages of growth, and it's chaos, centralized, decentralized. And so in the chaos phase is when I kind of own growth, which is, hey, you should own these metrics. And it's chaos because people are like, hey, you own this metric, but I have to do things for you. I don't want to do things for you, which is like the product team. I actually don't want you to, to, I was put in nasty call to actions in the product. Click here to get a CRM demo. They're like, what the hell are you doing to our product? And it's just like chaos, but I had a demand number to hit. The centralized phase came out of that, which is like, there's chaos, but there's good things happening. There's friction between teams, but actually within all that friction, we saw huge growth through freemium. PQLs were going up, users were going up, and we felt really great about this is a cool direction for us to go in. And so the product team established this kind of central growth team, and that growth team is only motivated to generate PQLs, generate user activations, generate a touchless revenue, and they've done an incredible job. If you want change in a metric, you have to have someone who has clear ownership of that metric, and has all of the resources to be accountable to it. What happens in companies, in a particular growth, where you try to set up growth, is you will go to the person who owns that metric, and you will say, hey, why is my metric not going up? And they'll say, well, this person won't do this for me. This person won't do that for me. I don't actually own this metric that you think I own. It's owned by all these different people, and these different people are motivated in many different ways. And the Thing that I think worked really well for us is we learned very quickly from the, the inputs we were having, which is like, hey, these teams don't necessarily own the metrics you think they own, and we established core teams who could take ownership for PQL. So today, we have a team who is clearly accountable for PQLs, and they are working with the different PMs to actually implement those triggers, and they're showing the PMs, hey, look how much revenue your feature is generating for the company, and they feel awesome about that. And then you move into the decentralized phase, which we're moving into, which is all these PMers are like, shit, this is really cool. Like, I'm creating these upgrade points. I'm creating all of this great onboarding. And I can see the how impactful this has been for the business. I'll take ownership of that and start to just build that into the way I build product. So growth evolves to become, that's just the way you build your feature. You think about your onboarding,
0: you think about your upgrade points. And I think that's the kind of phases that we've gone through. What's interesting, though, is that even with that team that owns that number, and I'm sure as you move to a point of decentralization as well, like on your team, you have different numbers, you know, that kind of guide up to maybe a central number. There's still going to be some friction points, right? And so for product, just to continue the thread, even though I know that the, the product growth leads are not necessarily your responsibility, you have part of the product team that's NPS or CSAT or something driven, and then you have part of the product team that's essentially like lead driven. How do those basic conflicts get resolved?
1: Yeah, I think that there is always some amount of friction when humans have to work together and there's like lots of different goals and people are motivated in in different ways. I think a big part of how it gets solved in our place is just like education of why that team is asking for that thing. So let's take that example of a pop-up. Like that specific example, there's some give and take in that the growth team would say, hey, we want to test this thing. There's a certain level of design that thing needs to look like to be consistent with the experience. There's a certain motion that that has to feel like to be consistent with an experience. So you have some teams say, we will do this thing, but it has to be consistent with the way that we want users to experience a core product. But they understand that the growth team is held accountable to these metrics, and the product org is there to help Hit, the, hit that re, uh, revenue number from the product. And so I think a lot of it is education of why these people are asking for you to do these things. And I'll give you a quick example. One of the things that I got terribly wrong when I took on marketing and growth in the early chaos stage is I acted like a marketer with my PMs and engineers, which meant I was very solution-orientated. I would go into a meeting and I was like, yo, I want you to do A, B, C. That's the solutions, let's do it, it's gonna work. And you probably know this, PMs and engineers, that's not actually how they work. A great PM helps to state a problem very clearly, provides the research. Engineers are way smarter than me, and they can find a far better solution than I can. So I was always in constant conflict with my PMs and engineers, where I was like, why won't you just do this thing? And someone, uh, our uh, chief product officer, Chris Brown, said something to me that always stuck with me, it was like, you are just so black and white. That's not how the world works. Like you're just being so black and white, you're a thing, it's your way or, or, or no way. And I, that was a big lesson for me on how to work with different groups.
0: When you think about your prioritization, and I, I know HubSpot's got a lot of resources and there's 60 people on your team, but how do you think about the specificity of those big rocks or whatever gold metaphor you wanna use?
1: Yeah, and so I used to be, I can, like, can kind of empathize with this, because when I first started on HubSpot, I was a marketer of one. So I was like, hey, you're a marketer, grow the international business. And I was like, okay, like, what do I do? <laughs> uh, and then I was like freaked out for about a month, and then I was like, okay, I better do my job. And so the way that we tried to do it is, we tried, I think that one of the things that's really helped uh, me and us is we build out this kind of predictive model for the next 12 months of growth. Like we predict that where our growth is kind of come from. So I can say, okay, well, if I do a top-down version of my growth, I, and I just trend things as they're growing today, this amount of demand is going to come from search, this amount of demand is going to come from our blog, and I can trend that out. And then I can look for gaps, right? And I'm like, okay, well, if I don't truly make the investment here or here, I'm just not going to miss my number. Like I already, n- if you, if you think about it, like a lot of marketers, what they do is they set a plan. They don't do a predictable model. And then at the end of the first quarter, they're like, oh, I missed my plan. If you had just built the model. You could see quite clearly that you were going to miss your plan. And it helps you to better tailor where you should actually invest. There are some things that are just like harder to get your head around, which are non-metric focused roles that you have to do. And they're actually the most, like the hardest things to do. I think that a thing that matters more than anything to SaaS companies today is positioning and how people think about your brand. And I think that's a huge investment to make that doesn't appear in that model, but makes that model way more impactful over the long term. Because you just have a flywheel. Like when people think of your brand, like they have a clear thing of the way they think about you, the way they think about ProfitWell, because you have all of this amazing content out there. And so there's some investments you have to make just on gut and courage and knowing that it's the right thing to do. And they can't, you can't just be a slave to that model. But that model certainly helps you to think about strategically where are some of the places that I'm under-invested in that I may need to be world-class in for me to eat, hit that revenue
0: number that I want to hit the next year. Do you track like experiments? I know that's what some growth teams do. Do you, maybe not comp based on it, but do you like push people forward on it? Like how do you, how do you think about making sure you're taking the right risks? And how does that then feed into the greater orange sprocket in the sense of, hey, we're going to spend a ton of resources on this huge risk that either will make or break the future, like freemium, like you guys went after, or could be a complete and utter failure, cost us tens of millions of dollars. So I love this question. I was obsessing about this, uh, I think it was last year. So
1: I'll, I'll, I'll go into two areas. The one thing HubSpot has is a culture of experimentation, actually to the point where... I think at times our problem isn't around getting teams to run experiments. It's around there's just too many experiments. Like you see one way, one thing that you go to something and it works one way, but actually it's working a completely different way for other people because they're just consistent experiments. So I think our big thing is like, how do we make sure that there's a central repository of all these experiments and making sure that there's good um, visibility across these different teams and the experiments they're running? I think we've got better at that, but our problem has never been the experiment framework, getting people to run experiments. It's always been... If you have multiple teams running experiments, they can overlap with each other. They can pollute uh, each other's results. And so we've had to get better at centralizing some of that stuff or just having a clear system that allows you to see how all these things are working together. There's not a great tool, actually, for big companies who are running a lot of experiments, like a centralized tool. I know there's one that uh, Sean Ellis has, but there's not... Uh, I don't. There's like That's a place where I think you could create some good software. In terms of your question, which is a great question, which is... The one downside to growth, if you, implement, if you implement the rigid growth structure, is that you would have the minimal viable version of something, and then you run that minimal viable version, and then if that result is like not the success, if it's a failure, then you decide not to invest your resources there. And I think that what that does is it drags, it kind of puts you into just iterating. You're just in a constant loop of like iteration, because you, a lot of the things that you have to be really aggressive and take big bets on, you can't prove out with a minimal viable version or you have to change what you think a minimal viable version is. So your minimal viable version and growth, the best growth teams, the way they run minimal viable versions is the least resources possible to do that thing because you're taking on less risk. And so one of the ways you can think about it is like a stock portfolio, where you take on a lot of your minimal viable version, you're kind of taking on less risk because you're reducing the scope of those tests and so you've got like sure fire stocks. It's so like a good portfolio of stock, right? And you're kind of, they're kind of a sure thing because you've run that minimal viable version, you've taken a lot of the risk, but you should certainly have a couple of things where the minimal viable version is either far greater of a risk. You have to build something substantial to really prove if it's going to be worthwhile or not, which means you're just taking on a lot more risk and just have a portion of your budget and resources where you're willing to invest in things where you could be right or wrong. It's easier for me to say that now that we have more resources. I think what success allows you to do is to take more risks and to be wrong a little bit more often or wrong in bigger, the magnitude of being wrong is like greater and that not to be completely shut the lights down on the business or to cause a huge amount of disruption. But the thing thing that I see with growth teams is you do need to really be very considered about what minimal viable means to you, because if minimal viable is like, how do I do this in the least disruptive way possible with the least amount of resources in a very reduced scope? I just think you get into a cycle of iteration, and I think there's some things you could say, well, I actually have to build a real thing here for me to prove if this is worthwhile doing, and that's going to take me like six months, a couple of engineers. Um, and it's interesting, I had this exact conversation with Pinterest when we were trying to figure this out, and Pinterest have this kind of surefire bets, reduced risk, and then, big things where we're willing to be wrong, but we're only going to do one of those every three months.
0: And when you, so going to your particular team, the A-team, so correct me if I'm wrong, it's everything up until basically like the or up until right the sign up, right? As soon as they sign up for an account, that's when product kind of takes over. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. And when you think about structuring your team members, so let's start with 5, <laughs> 15, 30, yeah. 60. There we so, go. Yeah, the group, the group
1: is huge because the thing about HubSpot is 100% of our global revenue, which is you know quite, quite a lot of revenue these days, comes from s- marketing source demand. So that's 60 people are accountable to create enough demand to hit that revenue number. That's why the group is so big, to give some context. And you guys are at hundreds of millions of yeah, dollars in revenue yeah. at
0: this point. Yeah, so, so, it, so it's like. So it, how much it, pressure, like how many diamonds do you create in your body
1: <laughs> just all the intensity? Yeah, I yeah. just have like waterfall charts. I'm like, OK, I'm not getting sacked this month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going to be here long enough. Uh, so in terms of how you think, like, so here, in terms of how you scale the team, that's a really great question because I get asked that all the time. Here's what I think that happens in a lot of companies. And also, when we were maybe, I joined when we were 30 people uh, in the marketing org. I think a lot of companies, like not your founder, I'm not sure if this is the way that you think of your, about your marketing team, you may not do this, you may do this. But a lot of founders and CEOs will be like, okay, marketing team, You're like why aren't we at this event? Why am I not appearing on Google? Why are we not doing collateral for the sales team, sales movement stuff? Why are we not doing this? And, the mar- and what happens is a marketing team ends up doing like a little bit of everything. So like their first 10 to 15 hires, they've got an SEO person, a blogger, a PR person, an events person, uh, and a uh, MoFu person, an enablement person, a field mark. and you're just, and everything is kind of like, no one has enough resources to actually do those things to any great level. So like they, they're all kind of like, why is this not working? And I think even we have this problem at our scale, we still have infinite amount of opportunities and finite amount of resources. One of the things I think that's hard to do, but is like pivotal, is how do you overinvest in a couple of things? Like, how do you say, okay, well, I'm, and there's a great quote came from Wade Foster, from Zapier, and he's this awesome thing he told me, which is, hey, when we were really scaling growth in Zapier, I was okay at being average at a lot of different things, but I really wanted to be world class at a couple of things that year. And I think that's a great way to look at your marketing team when you're trying to scale it out. It's like when I look at my marketing team and I think about the things I need to do for the next 12 months, what do I need to be like really great at? What do I need to be world class at? And do those people have the resources to be truly great at those things? These other things, I'm okay not being, you know, the best at PR, being the best at whatever the other things are. I know that when I start to put my focus on those things, we'll get better. And I
0: think it's hard to do that because you want to do everything when you're trying to grow. And so going back to then how you structure the team, you became a team of one, or you were a team of one, you brought on other people, and I think you kind of started leading a team or some people that were already there as well. When you look at that, then how do you structure your team? Back to the whole function versus outcome versus the mix. Like, you know, if we went through those 60 people, Who's doing what? Who's a generalized growth manager? Who's a demand gen specialist? Like how do you, who, what's the makeup of those folks?
1: Yeah, our team structure is co- confusing. <laughs> I just tried to map it out for someone and I got confused myself. It's just because there's a lot of people, but the way that I would break it down is that we have playbooks. So we try to distinguish everything into these kind of playbooks that are documented systematic ways to do things. So I'll give you an example. We have a blog content search type playbook which are made up of the blogging team and some search people. And that can be distilled into a three-step process, which is we have a search person who does this uh, analysis through custom tools, builds out an editorial calendar for the blog team of all of the content we should create. We have all of these blog teams. We have five blogs now. who create all of this content, search-driven, and they do that each and every quarter. And then we have this internal tool that looks to see where we're falling in traffic across all of this content and we'll try to figure out how to do historical optimization. So we think about the playbooks and then we create, make sure that we have the correct uh, team alignment. So we have a content team that services many different goals, that's why it gets confusing. So we have some people who are trying to generate leads, some people who are trying to create brand affinity. Um, We have a search team who are held accountable to leads, held accountable to software users. Uh, we have a paid marketing team that spends all of our dollars through paid advertising. So our, our structure is honestly quite, there's a lot of overlap. That's one of the things I've realized when you scale is that your core skill becomes, like you need to manage, your, as, a, as a manager or director in HubSpot and even me, Your part of your skill is how do I manage the people on my team? Most of it is how do I collaborate with other teams and create alignment? And so less about our team structure, the way that we align people on outcomes is we try to document playbooks that work and then we invest in those playbooks, and then we have the correct what we call, well, I, I started calling a work map, which I took from Coinbase, which is like documenting the playbook and the teams that are accountable to that playbook, which is outcome driven, so they have a clear goal, and to make sure that those teams have everything they need in terms of resources and alignment to hit that goal. And one of the things we go through is we'll create those work maps and then we'll create a fog document. A fog means where is the fog between these teams? in terms of like, they have conflict, they don't They don't know, they have this goal, this person has this goal. So we go through a f- fog clearing exercise. This is like our annual planning. And then we're like, cool, we know the model, we know the playbooks, we've cleared the fog. And we feel pretty good in terms of the starting point for the following year. Not to say that we don't get additional things that come up during the year that create more
0: fog. Let's go three clicks down here. So we have, you know, the level of like, hey, what's the vision of what we're going to do next year? We talked a lot about like structure of those individuals and like how to pick, you know, where you're going to attack. On an individual like level or individual team level, like what do you look for in someone who's going to be like rock solid on a growth team?
1: Ah, uh, that's a great question. It's a big existential question. Yeah, I that's, yeah. that's a big, I, I, so, let's see where I, I, guess I would break growth into, there's a couple of parts, right? So eight of my team are in IPMs in HubSpot. Which I think is really incredible. Like they the there's been a real transition from people who worked in my team kind of doing growth and are now actually PMing within HubSpot. So there's there's great synergies between growth marketers and then like the kind of PM discipline. In terms of what we look for, I think it, I I think one of the things I wonder about is like you you hear this kind of T-shaped generalist. Like that's the kind of marketer that people look for. And I think I don't actually think maybe in a certain size when you're a startup, what we look for is either if it's a channel-based role, like deep functional knowledge of that channel. What I talked about earlier is there's actually not that many channels to grow from, so why have a generalist marketer? Because those general marketers are going to get slayed in those channels by people who have deep experts in those channels. So I think people who go in and say, we, we went through a cycle where everyone on my team wanted to be a generalist. They were learning to code, they were doing SEO, they were doing content. I was like, yo, I don't need you to be a generalist. I need you to be the best person in the world at this one thing. And they can kind of gravitate from there. So a lot of it is like, if we're hiring for a specific channel, do they have channel experience? We think growth for product in terms of like user activation, PQLs. Most of those people who work in those teams have come from a product background. Like they've built product, they understand product, they know how to work in product orgs. Um, and similar to the engineers on those teams. So they have like they can build product, but they are also very, they're also very disciplined around their experiment framework, documentation, things like that. And so it, it's very, the answer to that is very contextual based upon the role we're trying to hire for. But certainly that I've always loved people who have demonstrated an ability to learn how something works and then figure out how to create leverage within that platform. Um, like figuring out how to do something that is like take, take this small thing and actually be really aggressive about how to scale that out and be creative in the way they think about it, whether that's search paid, whether that's user onboarding, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, your search, I, I was just playing around with one of the like public tools. And then I looked at like one of your, you know, a couple of your known competitors, and it was not even like a fifth of your search traffic, which I thought was insane. And and so you like leading growth or leading that A team. When you look at the beginning of the year, beginning of your planning cycle, um, do you look at okay, I'm going to go after these like three big things? Is it hey, we have all of these different channels, and then we're going to break down the playbooks within those, and our my directors or my the managers are going to take care of that? Like, how do you kind of set set the set the things in motion? Because obviously, you don't want to micromanage the A, the yeah. B, the C, like you mentioned before.
1: Yeah. So what we do is uh, we will do a. We do bottoms-up, top-down planning. So we'll do bottom up from revenue, and I'll do top-down to see where my gaps are, and then I'll freak out, and then I'll say, okay. Yeah, well, this is, <laughs> by the way,
0: let's, maybe let's not gloss over this, because this was a huge innovation when we stole this from HubSpot. Um, bottom, like even just for revenue planning, yep. like top-down, bottom-down, bottom-up. Can you explain that a little bit for folks? Yeah, so we go bottoms-up from revenue. So we will work back. If I take my freemium
1: model, when we, when we instrumented freemium, the way we held teams accountable was we went from revenue back to the number of PQLs we would need to generate each and every month. So I, if I generate 100 customers, I'd work back to say I need this many PQLs, this many active users, this many signups, and this many uh, visits. And we actually all went all the way to visits. And then I could say, okay, well, I have a monthly waterfall chart for the marketing team to hit a certain amount of signups, product team to hit active users and PQLs, and then the sales team to hit touch revenue. And then I will do a top-down from the trend. Like if I just pull the spreadsheet forward, actually how far away am I from the things I'm going to need to generate each and every month, which is the thing that helps us figure out where I need to invest in every year. And it just makes you feel more confident that at least I know what the hell I'm trying to hit and where my potentially my gaps are. And so we use the bottoms up to hold
0: teams accountable and the top down to find gaps. Yeah, I just, I thought it was fascinating too because sometimes, or I think at a company level, at least what I heard was finance will do the top down in the sense of, hey, here's where we are, here's the growth rate we've had, If we just pulled that growth rate forward here's where we are then they go to the actual teams and go hey what do you what do you think based on your trends and then everything goes down in a handbasket at the vp and exec level because it's like you're like i can only create this much and finance is like what the hell karen you can crew more like that type of stuff but i think it's a super useful thing because at least at the outcome we had and i'd love your thoughts on this Everyone felt accountable once everyone decided, cool, I'm gonna give a little bit here. They're like, okay, cool, like, let's re- reconcile here. And then, then when we went into actually execution, everyone was like, awesome. The big part about it,
1: right, is that the people who are held accountable to numbers feel like they've been part of the process. And they feel, they can clearly understand where their number came from. What happens certain sometimes is like, here's your number for the coming year, and like, where, where the hell did that come from? It's like 70% percent year in year growth. When I do, I'm only growing at 10% percent year in year and then it also helps you to have a resource discussion because you're like, okay, well, I have my bottoms up, top down, and then I'm like, here are the clear gaps and here are the investments. So this person's asking for a headcount, but actually, they're not the person that you need to give headcount for because their thing's grown okay, they're accountable to a smaller part, whereas there's a huge gap here. And so you have a resource, it
0: helps to focus your resource and discussion. What I found too, that the reconciliation process from a budget standpoint helps a lot, especially with a company like, obviously HubSpot's public, lots of, Lots of resources, but feels like not enough resources, I'm sure, all the time. But for for other companies, it's one of those things where you're looking at it where it's like, well, this is what I can do bottom-up with this budget. Here's what you want top-down. Like, okay, cool. Here's your budget. You know, let's lock it in. Or what if I gave you 50% more? Or what if you only are going to get 50% less? What can we expect? And then at the end of the day, it's like, well, there's no excuse for hitting or not hitting except for – I mean, there's always – Hindsight, but I think it's really, really helpful to hold people accountable. Yeah,
1: if you can, if you can remove the resources and budget excuses from not hitting a number, it's so much easier to actually uh, create that growth. And I don't mean that like people are making excuses I mean that that is a genuine reason they're not hitting their number which is comes back to the either conflict they don't have enough resources they don't have the budget to be successful and they've just been given a target out of nowhere and no one thought about how they're actually going to hit that target those people feel more and more in charge like feel more ownership over that thing and they feel they'd be supported to actually uh, be successful
0: when you think about HubSpot or your time at HubSpot so far what was the biggest, like, complete failure from a growth perspective that's happened that you can say publicly? Uh, that I can say publicly, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the hard part. That's there, pretty yeah. hard. Uh, like, been... Was there ever something that just, I mean, you oh, yeah, I'll do tell so you. much planning, yeah. but was there ever something that you were like, this wasn't gonna be a minimum viable you know, experiment, yep. and it was just like, yep, that did not work, and we spent probably too much money on it? Yeah, I, they, most, of them, most of them on the marketing team are probably me.
1: Um, because I get too excited and run, I run towards the thing and forget to do the minimal viable thing and I'm one of the things I'm good at is selling an idea but that can be a, a weakness as well because I sell the idea and I actually should have uh, proven it out. I built this thing um, I was really excited about it I walked into my scene kit Kip and I was like yo have you seen the data you can get from SimilarWeb from their API? He's like uh, is it good? I was like yeah it's killer it can, it's, it's going to be a killer tool and I I got these uh, developers and uh, I got, we were really small back then. I was a team of like, it was when I was growing the international, it so was maybe there were six or seven of us spent a lot of my program budget that I should have been spending on an MQL for the sales team, on developers, designers, built this tool that kind of indexed all of the blogs, um, all of the blogs you could, you could, uh we could index. We could segment them by region uh, so I could show the European blogs. I import, I ingested similar web data. I ingested Moz data to score the blogs and rank them. And I was like, we've created like a like marketing grader. I was like, oh, I'm going to create a blog grader and it's going to be my thing in HubSpot and it's what people are going to know me for. Oh, man, it got like no traffic. Oh, no. <laughs> so like, I launched, I was like, look at this, and I was sharing it with everyone. And then like, you know, after, you know when things don't work because after a month, the person who who, who launched it stops talking I was talking about it nonstop till it launched and then after it launched I was like we're working on other stuff these days why,
0: why don't you think that like where where was like the fatal
1: flaw or whatever I where didn't you're... think of ongoing demand like if you think Tell about more. like so where would I where would this tool get ongoing demand there was no search demand for people searching for what are the best blogs and how are they graded there was no virality um, and the people I was like well one of the core components is like influencer right it's going to create a great Dynamic where all of these blogs really care where they're ranked in them. Turns out none of them give a shit. No one cared that they were on that list or they were off the list. So we couldn't get them. And we created little badges. No one wanted the badges.
0: Um, was it, and it was grading, not, it wasn't grading a blog post. It was just the, blog. the blogs. Overall. So we look at. It, so, Profitwell.com slash blog. Yeah,
1: and similar way. Yeah. Put in like the amount of traffic yep. and all of this stuff. So you can, we use traffic links and social engagement to come up with a score. Like, yeah. Yeah. Good
0: idea, but uh, yeah, yeah. turns out
1: don't do that till no one wants that's it. That's very
0: product market fit. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, like trying to find the market. Yeah, and I could have, I could have just like,
1: well, how would I have proven that that's a good thing to do? Created yeah. a blog post with the top ten blogs in yeah, the UK and right. see if yeah. anyone cared, and give had badges yeah. and give them out. It's, it cool. would have took me five minutes to prove that it's a terrible <laughs> idea,
0: not six months to build it and yeah. then not to get any traffic. When you think about um, your career so far, like what's something that you really struggled with that you overcame, and, and how did you overcome it?
1: Yeah, uh, there's lots. So one of the things that I used to think was my success is wholly dependent upon myself. And I was really territorial when I um, I was like, yo, I need to own all this stuff. And I need to be the best person at this stuff. And I need to demonstrate that I'm the best person at this stuff. And I carried that through into management. Uh, and I think I was quite territorial as a, a new manager. And I was like, no, I need to own this. No, I need to own this. Um, I need to demonstrate that I can do all these things, um, and I was in the weeds with everything. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be better than you at this. I need to know all the things that you know. And it took me a while actually through management to There's two things that, that were big inflection points for me as a manager. There was realizing that my success is just dependent upon my team. I now my team just show me how they're doing things. I'm like, shit, I have no idea how you did this. It's, it's awesome. And so, and I'm not territorial. Like I'll, hey, you you should have my team, you should you guys should go sit there. I don't care as long as the thing gets done. And that that was I learned that in growth, which is like I was too territorial in growth, and I learned that actually these cross-functional teams dedicated to a goal, who cares who they report to? It's how you're successful. The other thing that was a huge turning point in my career and my actually my life was I'm a kind of introvert extrovert. So I can easily not talk to someone three days, but I love being with people. But when I first joined HubSpot, I was like a robot. I would go into my team. I was like, where are their numbers? Where are their numbers? And uh, Kip said to me, you know, you should care about what your team do at the weekend. Like Kip's my CMO. He's given me incredible advice for the year. He said, you should really care about what your team do with, like, with their lives. You should care more about just the numbers. And I started to just like, hey, at the start of a, it sounds silly, but the start me and was like, how was your weekend? What did you do this week? How are you feeling? And that's helped me in life as well, which is just like, I want to get to know people. And it's, it's a very small
0: thing. It completely changed how people thought about me as a manager. When you, when you think about like, just your life at this point, like why this versus being a firefighter, being a doctor, being whatever? Like, why, why is this the, the calling? Yeah, it's a,
1: so I, a lot of the people, my career is different from a lot of people I've hired, where I hire these people who are go to college, do amazing in, in college, and then come straight out and know what they want to do and they're just like marketers and they're, and they're killing their career. I was pretty terrible at my career and my career management when I first started. So I came out of college with a, a degree in computer science. It's like, I'm gonna be a developer because I can earn a lot of money. Um, and it turns out I was terrible at being a developer. Like I couldn't develop for shit. And so I, was spent, I spent two to three years and it took me a long time to like accept that I wasn't gonna be a developer because I couldn't afford to go to college I'm lucky in Ireland that people who can't afford to actually get grants, and so because it was such a big thing for me to get this grant and to get a really good qualification, it felt terrible to just start again. It was kind of scary, and so I have been in a place where I've been really at a low point with my career. So like I, I always wanted to do something that I was excited by. My mom was a, like you know, t- typical Irish kind of family where they're like, "Hey, your job's not your life," and that never really resonated with me. I was like, well. I just have to be happy in my job, I'd be happy in my life, and I was really unhappy with my career and I think when you 've been happy with your career and then find something you like um, and then when you like something, you can actually be good at it i don 't think you can ever be good good at something that you 're just not inherently interested in that 's why I love doing what I do because I you know it 's something I actually enjoy. I get to meet people, have interesting conversations with like amazing people like yourself and founders, and like who am I but a, an Irish person from a small rural Town and I get to I get to have all, all, all of these amazing adventures. So it's been uh, it's it's been a real highlight of my
0: of my life get into this. space. Thanks so much to Kieran for lending his time and obviously telling us how he protects the hustle. In this episode, we learned all about what it takes to build a growth team. He discussed the stages of growth, how to prioritize what to focus on, the makeup and scaling of a growth team, playbooks and planning and finally learning from mistakes and defining purpose. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.